Good evening everyone and welcome to the Hourglass with Isabella. Today is a very special episode. As you know, I'm here with my co-host. Hello, Daniel. Daniel. And we have a very special guest with us today for the first time ever on our podcast. Yes, a guest. We have Donald. Good evening, everyone. So, Donald, how long have we known you for? Oh, my, my, I would say a little before my first Vampire Ball, so almost a little over three years, three and a half years, maybe? Three and a half years. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Donald has come to the desert with us. He has been to mm-hmm. the festival Burning Man with us. In fact, he camped with us last year. Tell us, before we get into our actual topic, how was your Burning Man experience? Fabulous. That was an adventure. For a first burn, that was the way to go. Um, had an incredible time. It was an adventure. It was all art, music, survival. What was, what was your best takeaway memory, if you had to give one? Best takeaway memory? I think possibly my first time just riding my bike all the way to the end of the playa. Always in, in did, you, did, you go, did you go all the way to the fence? Yeah, I went all the way to the fence. The first time I went out there, this trash well, fence is where it's at. Yeah, I went all the way out there, saw what I could see. And, the night, and I think I love the playa the most because it seemed like every time I go out there, day after day after day, you always find something new. You know, what, and even if you went to a spot one day, you go there another day, you, there's something new there sometimes. And it's just, it just adds to the adventure. Right so there. for our listeners who maybe have never been to Burning Man, maybe they're thinking about going, what would you say to those people who've never been before? Is it something you say you should try this? Or? Yes. However, in my, as far as my original interest in going, it was all about the art. I love the art concept of it. I didn't really know about the survival side of it until after I started researching it more. After after I contacted you and you said, "Hey, we got room," I started looking until I'm like, "Wow, this is more it's intense hardcore. than I would," you know. But I still went for it and it was still an adventure. So if you're up for a little survival, even if it's not your thing to be like a survivalist, it's something to try at least once. I think. Yeah. Um, if you're into the art, the music, and just exploring and having a, a, a one of the strangest adventures you'll ever have. Um, it's definitely something to try if you have a little adventure and you. No Absolutely, what. it's a bucket yes. list item. That's not why we've got you here tonight. No. We actually have you here for a different topic. In fact, we will be doing a whole Burning Man segment episode just dedicated Someday. to Someday. I like that plan. But I have one specific memory of you at Burning Man. And I'm not really a tool user in the sense that I'm not operating heavy power equipment. And uh, we had, I believe it was a grinder. Type thing was it? It was a. Oh uh, yes. What was it? It was, that was just like a little hand disc grinder. Was all that? What was. hand grinder? Yeah, right. That was like the a little disc grinder. Sparks come flying off, and I have this memory of we're in this container, and this, we're trying to fix something. I think it was the St Andrew's Cross, and these sparks are flying, and the goggles are on. It was so <laughs> out of my personal comfort zone, but such an important memory that I've held on to. And your speciality and interest is within tools, isn't it? Well, specifically tools on the manufacturing side. I mean, as far as what we did in Burning Man, that was just kind of a fun moment in the middle of the night, just in cutting a piece of steel apart, you know, yeah, which, my I, hand, which you know. I'd never gotten to experience before. So yes. for me, that was a new experience. I'm sure we have many listeners who are maybe, you know, interested in kind of exploring that whole world. And just earlier outside, we were having this great topic, which Daniel was discussing as well, about China and manufacturing because we produce right now you're wearing a piece of our jewelry mm-hmm. and it is made by Alchemy Gothic in London and also Arbitry. I like the idea of having it made locally or in countries right. versus going to China. Yes. So we were actually just 
then this is part of your your knowledge. Well, why don't you tell us what you do? Yeah, very good. That's a that's a yeah. great no. That's a great way to start. The easiest way to say it is, I make the thing that makes mass produces the other things that everyone buys. So in essence, you know, all the plastic parts that go into all the products we buy. My customer will talk to their customer, they send them a file, then they send me that file and say, hey, quote a tool to mass produce okay. this. So I'll quote the tool, well, and if we get the job, hopefully we do, um, I will design the tool, engineer it, and then go in the shop and make the tool. And all these tools are high precision made, high precision metalworking, Very um, cool. right. uh, one of a kind. You know, in most cases, there are cases where you make more than one tool. Sometimes, if you got really high volume, sometimes, but for the most part, they're one of one-offs um, yeah. that will mass produce thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of parts. Okay, um, so large-scale production. Yeah, so I make the thing that does the mass. So basically, my tool, my customer will take that, put it into their press. Uh, I do do injection molds, die cast, and I do do uh, trim dies for die cast. Okay. Um, and then they, they, once I build it, they take it and run it inside their facility. And then they make it go. Right. So going back to the conversation, you'll have to remind me. Right. So, so the question that I have, and I've always been fascinated by because I've done various projects with China over the years. And it's always fascinating to me as to how it can possibly be cheaper to make anything in China and then have it shipped over here on a boat or on a plane and then gets, it gets put on a train and then it ends up being a truck. How... Like and especially because I buy I buy some parts that are really small, and 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 how can that possibly be uh, be be cost effective? And so and so how did that how does how did that happen? Um, I have a couple of possible known reasons for that. One is they have a very large population and they are hiring very unskilled people and trying to train them. I, I give them credit for trying to train, of course, because it is high end <laughs> sweatshops. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but a lot of them are you know. Coming in from places where okay, you're not yes. used to our lifestyle, so so is the, is the, so they're willing to work for a roof over their head and a bowl of rice, right? But it is the is the labor cost? Yeah, they need that. That's what, part of it. What that's it not the only I mean, part. A lot, of, a lot of this stuff, my understanding is that's a lot of one level is mechanized, and so it's it's you know it's pretty much. I mean, yes, there needs to be somebody there to press the button, but it's not really skilled labor to make the parts. I mean, to actually, the part right. the run the tooling less right. so to make the tooling. It, it's more higher higher level. So what have you you mentioned? There are other levels. <laughs> what are those other levels? The other thing that China has done a very good job of that I'm aware of is that they have done a very good job of of using their soft power and investment to get raw resources, raw materials. Okay. They basically dominate Africa right now. Oh, and I didn't Af know that. Oh yeah, as far so as raw materials. Is, this is why I like this podcast. They are dominating. Because they are, they are by, and a good example, and this is like years ago, the last shop I worked at, which was a, for a tool shop, a very large shop, it was a 60 man shop, mm -hmm. very high end. I learned a ton there. I mean, my knowledge, I already knew a lot when I went there and went even higher. Um, but we had this one project, it was a prototype project. So we were making it out of aluminum, which wasn't very common at that place. Aluminum is cheap. Um, you know, not this kind of aluminum. This is, this is tool seal level. Oh, so far, it has to be strong enough aluminum to actually resist the injection molding pressures, which, are, which can get kind of high uh, for aluminum. Didn't but anyway, we needed a piece thing. so big, so big for this part, that they couldn't find a piece. The, the, strip, the place that they went to to buy the material could not find a piece of aluminum big enough, and their excuse to the company was, China's buying all the aluminum right now. They're buying, right. not companies, China itself. 
And on top of that, and I don't know if it's still true, I've, this is maybe a bit more of a rumor, I haven't really confirmed this myself, but I have heard over the years that a lot of the tool shops in China and a lot of manufacturing in China do get subsidies for raw materials. Interesting, I didn't know that. I don't get subsidies for my raw materials. Interesting. I'm not complaining about it, but so I know that subs- gives them an advantage. Oh, so in a, we actually have an extra guest here, just so you guys are aware. <laughs> I don't want you to, no, I don't want them to be like, who is this random person? So would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, yeah. I'm Brittany Wilcox. And she's a actually she's a photographer, so she was here today of a shout actually taking photos of some of the models we have here. She's our studio audience. She's our studio audience. <laughs> so, also, okay. being a straight up asshole. Sorry. Okay, <laughs> totally fine. Okay. So, so 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 I guess so my question would be, you know, what could we do to to make it more competitive to make stuff here? Because I, I feel like so so you know my background I come from I come from Michigan. And in Michigan, you know, cars. obviously cars are the, are, are the deal. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and so people in, in Michigan used to be able to, you know, raise a family making parts and, and doing this sort of thing. I mean, literally yes, would spend right. their entire career pressing buttons and pulling levers and could, you could put so, your kids to college through that and buy yeah. a house. So we actually just took a quick break to grab some tea. Yes. And previously, we just we were discussing. We were, yeah, we were talking about we were talking about manufacturing and and you know why why it's even why it even makes any sense for stuff to be made in China because it's so far away it doesn't it, you know it seems like you know the 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 cost to import it would be would be prohibitive uh, and and Donald was saying that it has to do with the, the labor but also raw materials so so my question so my my background I come from uh, from Ann Arbor which is in Michigan. And, you know, obviously the, the auto industry is a big deal there. And, and, you know, it used to be that, that people could, you know, make a living running, you know, tool and die machines and, and, and making, making tool, making parts. Um, and obviously it's, you know, in large part, not so much because of China, um, but just because automation has, has, you know, taken away a lot of these jobs. And now, you know, what used to be that required somebody to sit around and press a button, pull a lever now can be done by computer and, and whatnot. Um, but but I'm but I'm super interested in in what you think it would take to to be able to bring manufacturing back to the United States in in a way that was actually sustainable. One getting a little angry, I think. <laughs> um, not necessarily at China per se, other than possibly uh, a good example is Caterpillar. Uh, Caterpillar, Caterpillar is a company that builds very large earth moving machinery. Okay. Very big company, multi-billion dollar global company. Um, and a story I heard many years ago was that they had an engine, a new engine, huge engine, that they wanted to build. And they that was their first try going to China has it produced. So they found an engine builder over there and they had them build it. And the, the original plan was to build one prototype. And then when they flew over there to look at their prototype, they realized they were building two prototypes instead of one. Mm-hmm. One was their own. And the so, other one. Well, when the product came to market, China underbid them by hundred. It was supposed to be a you know hundred, two hundred, three thousand dollar engine or something like that. It was just a, it was a monster engine, and China underbid them like a hundred, two hundred, three thousand dollars wow. per unit. Okay, now how is Caterpillar, who engineered it, going to make the money they expected? From on that, that product, when China's gonna, uh, when this company uh, made a secondary prototype, That's so crazy. they can sell it underneath them at market. 
Which I mean, is what they did. Right. I, mean, I, so I, I, I always tell people that go to China that you just have to assume that they're going to steal your shit. It's, it's, it's the rules <laughs> it's of just, intellectual just, property. Exactly. And, and so, well, it doesn't matter what it is. Like the, right. the choker necklaces we make, which come from China, were immediately sold to a people. Same design, essentially. So, but I think it's something to be expected. In fact, even lingerie companies like Victoria's Secret, the same sellers were allowing those sure. to be sold. I think, I think as, long as, as long as we're doing business with China, at least in the current climate, that's just the way it is. And so the, so the question is, you know, if, you know, so I, I guess the fundamental question is, why did they go to China in the first place? Cheaper. Well, right? for them was price. They wanted to try yeah. and produce a good engine at a cheaper price, but have it be their product. Right. But again, Which was, it was so, kind of stolen from them because of the rules on intellectual property there are not Who's honored able to hold it up, here. yes. Right. Things do get stolen here from time to time, sure. You but can follow it up. In this is a huge this is a much bigger deal. This right. is like a small yes. piece of equipment. This is a, right. a big I mean, I know that in, you know, I, I obviously have worked on a lot of, uh, you know, aerospace military contracts over the years and, and all that stuff needs to be made domestically. No questions asked. Yeah. Um, because, because it's, because, you know, it's oh, national, security. It national security. National security. So, can, I, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Right. And I won't do anything that will endanger you in any way, but without revealing anything, what was the highest level of security ever? Had. I, I only had a top secret clearance. No big deal. What was it called? Top, top secret? Top secret clearance. That okay. means so you so can never discuss it, but he had it, which is... It's, it's not even that. It's, I can even tell you exactly don't, what don't, it was. Don't it's, do it. It's not, it's not, it's not interesting. <laughs> it turns out that all that stuff is, is far less interesting than you would expect. Far less interesting. But the purpose you take ultimately all the is to keep the government yeah, the, the idea, safe. The idea ultimately is to keep, is to keep you know, this sort of stuff here. Exactly. Because if you went exactly. to China, then... So, so a really interesting there. example right now uh, is, is rocket engines, right? So... So the rocket engines that we actually use, that, that uh, ULA, you know, all the, the main provider of rockets right now. Is this, those, like those Lock, engines, is this Lockheed Martin? Does it is it? actually a Lockheed Martin Boeing joint venture because okay. this is a whole other topic for a whole we other day. We should have a space we, topic. We can totally aliens. do that. But the point is that they're actually Russian made. Okay. Right, they're actually Russian-made engines. It turns out Russians are really good at metallurgy. Okay, that's but isn't it? Well, question is government. Wherever Russia, what's the relationship yeah. to be able to do it, that? It has to be. It has to be positive, and and, and that's yeah. the way it works. And okay. so and so, obviously, people think this is a national security concern, which is why you know ULA ended up partnering with uh, Blue Origin, actually. Uh, which Jeff Bezos is uh, Jeff Bezos yeah, is his Amazon, Amazon company yeah. to, to make their Merlin engines, and they're going to try that out. But the point is, they were good engines, and they worked, and that's fine. And I think for a long time. You know, there was this sort of neoliberal idea that we could have a global economy, that we should have a global economy. The problem is, I think, that that as we were alluding to earlier, some people don't play on an equal playing field. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so and so the question is at the end of the day, you know, how do we how do we make that playing field equal? Do we lower our standards or do oh. we require other people to raise oh. their yeah, let's see, let's see, so, Donald, what do you think about yeah. this? In my trade, which is specifically told me, especially in industrial molding. The only way we've really competed somewhat successfully over my career was high quality. However, high right. quality requires high mm-hmm. skill level. And Indeed. induction mold building, the building of the tooling itself, whether it be induction mold or die cast or any tooling really, requires a very high level skill level. Right. Um, it, you have to be able to be a, kind of a, in a way a jack. You have to know how to run every machine. The old school tool makers used to know every machine. Many of them could design their own tooling from scratch, sometimes on paper. Of course, everything's designed on solid model and PLM software now. Um, but what happened? Well, it got to a point, I think, where the only way the higher-end shops that have survived were able to make money were on the products that had higher volumes. Okay. That's part of the math. In the sense that if a 
product has higher volumes, you can charge more for the tooling because the tooling has to last longer. You have to put more quality into it. Right. Um, products that are lower volume, which is I get a lot of lower volume stuff on the diecast okay. side, which I'm being competitive with, but I don't get everything. Um, you know, it, it, but the price point drops very quickly because the end customer can only sell so many units per year. So how right. much are they really willing to pay on that piece of tooling to produce to that get part? that, yeah. A higher volume parts, they're going to make more money because they're making more parts. Right, Therefore, right. they have more resources to spend on a better to piece of tooling. To do that and spend on that, yeah. So really, to me, as far as competing with them, we've tried to use higher skill level to get the better jobs with higher volumes so in many me, cases. Let me ask you this question. We talk about Woolies in England from Tudor times historically. We have a sense of apprenticeship. You'll take on an apprentice. Do you have I, apprentices? I was your, an apprentice. Or is it something you have to go it's, to university for and learn a skill? To, tell me about it. I was an apprentice. So you um, were an apprentice? Yes, I was an apprentice. Yeah, I did. I served. Actually, the funny thing is I did my apprenticeship through Plano Molding uh, back cool. in Illinois. Um, Illinois. Well, okay. If anybody who likes to right, fish. Well, tell us about for people who are not from America. Illinois is, is a small, large <laughs> Chicago. Chicago, Illinois. Somebody tell me. Illinois. Chicago land. Oh, Chicago actually, land. Actually, actually, it's Plano in Plano, Illinois. Chicago is in so, Illinois. So Plano, Plano makes fishing tackle. Yes. So anybody like who knows fishing, fishing knows Plano. Also, okay. also, they were known for the caboodles. Remember caboodles? caboodles? I don't know if you know caboodles. But caboodles. The, the old school, like, well, the original caboodle was... Uh, Reverse engineered modified tackle box. Wow. The original okay. ones. I did That's know the company that. I did you, my you pressure. You taught for. me something new today. Yeah, so the, old, the original caboodle. The caboodle originated. It got popular for a while and then they started did custom you know that? designing stuff. No. Yeah. Wow. You've taught Donald, you've yes. taught me something. Molding. Getting back on track, I didn't even take off with the Illinois thing for people yeah, out the of ones the state. Cabo- it's oh. hard. I think sometimes, you know, moving from England, it's hard for me sometimes to. remember to, where everybody is. Well, just, it might have been to, I've been to Chicago for windy. Right. It was very windy and cold. It, mm-hmm. it held up to its name. We went My to hometown. the Miracle Mile, the Mile, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. But moving along from that, Back to the previous. So you had an apprenticeship in Plano. Yes, yeah. I, I worked there what? for many years. Uh, did my apprenticeship, but the, but my job there was more on the maintenance side. They didn't. I think the whole time, seven years I was there, they only built one new tool from scratch. Wow. It was more, re, but it was more maintenance, more repairs, fixing inserts, um, and I learned a lot though. So you learned from the ground up. Yes, but again, very high skill level. It's still high precision. Did they require like when you were going into it? Did they require any kind of university degree, or did they just let you in to learn the trade? Uh, in, in Chicago, and this is only as far as I know, in Chicago, they have an organization called TMA, Tooling and Manufacturing Association. Okay, yeah. And what they did is they teamed up with the uh, different colleges in Chicago, um, and they put in, they have a three-year program That's where great. they bring in people that are actually in the business into the college, and they teach a class. So it's okay. a three-year program. So, I had, so it was a mix of on-site learning. I had to track my hours on grinding, track my hours on milling, track my hours on everything I did, maintenance, cleaning, whatever it was. And then I would go to school at the college three nights a week um, and, and, and learn uh, from these people that were actually active people in the trade, that were successful people mm-hmm. in the trade that were at various levels, different places. Um, and that's, you know, and once I finished that, finished my hours, tracking my hours, and then I actually am a journeyman, what they call a journeyman. Journeyman, yeah. I am a journeyman. I am the labor of uh, labor. I am a journeyman moldmaker. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think this is something we should be encouraging more in our country? And for anyone perhaps who is listening and interested, how would you say about going, getting into it? Is it worth getting into? Did you enjoy the journey? Tell us. Yes. I mean, it's definitely something we need to encourage. 
because uh, especially on my side of the trade, as far as my side of the machining trades especially, we have been complaining about a lack of skilled labor for my entire career. And okay, it's always yeah. been a lack of, of skilled labor. However, you, I'm sure you're both, I'm sure everyone listening has probably heard about the decline in wages. Wages, cost of living goes up, but wages have it's not. It's hard, yeah. So how do you entice somebody who's young to Ent- come into a trade that's high skilled, high knowledge, very physical, it is physical, physical, labor, yeah. physical and mental, at a low wage? You're not. You're, no, you're going to do something else. You're going to get the computers, programming, gaming, right. what something so, else. So along those lines. So, so how much have you seen? Um, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, a lot of your field is now dominated by computer aided design and mm-hmm. whatnot. How much have you seen uh, artificial intelligence and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. sort of, sort of, sort of coming in and, and being able to capture all those specialized skills, so that now rather than having to know that oh, you need this thickness at this point, you have a computer that can actually tell you and, and solve the problem That's for you. That's a great question. Yes, I, I have uh, some experience with that. Um, last shop I was at was probably the highest in shop I ever worked at in my entire career, hands down. They actually had robots in the tool they shop. Had robots? What they actually they had like? robots. They had robots. Tools making tools. Arms. What do they look like? Just a robotic arm, like you see, like, wow. like have you ever seen pictures like in like a auto factory, the welders? Yes, yes, I know what you're doing. Similar yes. to that, only in the welding, it was okay. just loading machining centers with electrodes, for example, or loading a wire EDM uh-huh. or something like that. Um, and my take on some of that is, and some of this goes back to one of my favorite satire shows, kind of mentioned. I'm, I'm probably gonna have the numbers off a little bit off the top of my head, but you know, since the you know 70s, 80s. The U.S. is actually doing a lot of manufacturing. We're actually manufacturing more than we so did I didn't know that. back in the '80s. We're not, however, we're doing it with one third the workforce because of automation. Right. Well, when this leads me onto one question I want to ask Daniel. This is an important one. Do you think robots will take over the whole entirety of manufacturing? Yes. Real, real NASA answer. Yeah. No, there's no question. And now, please that's explain why. That's why, why. That's, well, no. So I mean, so at the end of the day, you know. The, the problem the problem is, as we were talking about before, about the pushing buttons, pulling levers, right? That's the sort of stuff that you can easily imagine robots can do. And, and they have. And that's what's displaced a lot of the workforce. Exactly what the man's saying about the fact that we, we can do more manufacturing with less people, right? That trend will continue. And, the, and for a long time, we've sort of held out that skilled professions are somehow going to be insulated from this. And, and they are to some extent. But, it's you know, niche. but yeah. it turns out, it turns out that the way that we're going... Um, you know, in, in the development in AI and the push on this thing actually puts a lot of jobs in danger that you wouldn't think about otherwise, like lawyers, like even lawyers, lawyers and, and doctors and things like this. Can you explain like the lawyer thing? So, so the idea behind, behind, you know, so what is a lawyer? A lawyer is somebody who can, you, you know, can put together, well, no, but not really. A lawyer is actually somebody who, you know, makes arguments and, and publishes a lot of briefs and documents and things like that. So we, we have As a friend, have, Candy, mm-hmm. who's a lawyer. Do you think she would lose her job in the future? And, and the next question after that is, let's say we take everything to robotic manufacturing. What becomes of humans? What do we do at that point? Well, and that's and that's a, that's the fair question to ask. And so, you know, to get back to the manufacturing question in particular, because we, have, we have had a long, illustrious career of doing this, and, and the robots theoretically do a great job. I mean, and the reality is at the end of the day that the robots are able to make a lot more sophisticated parts than we used to be able to make. I mean, likewise, you know, computer-aided design. Before computer-aided design, everybody had to draw all this stuff by hand. They had to mill the, mill the tools from by hand. But I, I think that's something I, beautiful about that. I would, I would say that in many cases that's fair, but in some cases it's not. For example, in some cases right now, although it can change and get to the level you're talking, 
as far as my personal experience, mm-hmm. is that most robots are only as good as the programmers programming. Absolutely oh, true. That's a great statement. And the other problem I have seen in the shop that I, the last shop I worked as an employee is that you know I had some advantages. I showed certain skills. They they gave me some chances. I made good on those chances and 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 good. went above and beyond. But then I saw these other guys that were you know machine op- more machine operators that were timid. Op- automation does kill some jobs, but it also does currently, which could change, create other jobs that Absolutely. are. But so those jobs we, are higher can, end. Can we get They're an more knowledge. I like, I'd like an example of one of those jobs for the humans remaining who well, don't have jobs. What does that look like for them? For us in the future, all well, of us. Well, for example, there was a guy on the floor that ran the machines more the way we used to. We set up the robot. It okay. was a project that went on while I was, during my employment there, and he. You know, I dived into it because I'm into that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to learn. Nice. He was more computer illiterate. Okay, yeah. Not trying yeah. to put him down no, no, no. in any way, shape, or form. It's hard. You know, we all have our skill levels. We all have our comfort levels. Right. And, you know, even like basic windows and certain things were a little more of a struggle for him. So to set up, tell, show him how to set up the robot and tell it, grab these programs, run these parts in this machine and these parts in this machine and yeah and it actually it was set up the way the the company that set it up for us did a great job in my opinion cool. as far as making it pretty simple um but he struggled with it and i i honestly like you know for me it wasn't bad but for him it was a struggle a really right. hard and, and, that's, and that's what you find a lot in, in in detroit as well it's the idea that there there obviously are still those one you know one third of jobs there are plenty of jobs around um, but they are, you have to be comfortable with it. You have yes. to be, you know, okay with it. And you have to, a lot of it comes down to trust as well. I've, I've known in my career, a lot of experts, you know, uh, you know, older, older people from another generation, and they just don't trust computers. Right, because they don't <laughs> and, know the technology. Because, because they're not familiar with it. And so, you know, what I would expect to happen is, and I see this in the world of software itself, where we now have software that can write software. Right, and so you end yeah. up, and you, and you end up with Tiger you know, King people. Writes Tiger people, King. people, people come up, and and you know they know how to do these sort of things, and and then you know the question is, you know, do you bother convincing people who already know how to do things, or do you just get rid of them? And, okay, and say, okay. So this this is brings us to a brunt of the question here. If if we are in the future here replacing people, I think it's a great time to discuss this topic because of the pandemic, and so many of us have become disconnected from our jobs potentially lost our jobs, have been isolated at home and are having to look for new avenues. I don't think, regardless of the pandemic, this is a thing that's going to go away. I think it will exponentially become worse. I think it's just accelerating. Then the real question is, and, and something I think all of us need to be thinking about, if in the future it doesn't matter if it's China or the United States, if AI and robotics things are taking over all things, because it's easier to have your grocery store things done by a robot, right, to take fruit because it's cheaper and it's easier and everybody takes that path, is that something negative, which I think it sounds fairly disheartening when you listen to it, or is it the best potential growth for humans ever because it opens us up to explore things we were never able to explore before in our homes, whether we want right. to paint or explore art and, and muses and language and, and things that are not necessarily dependent on work. But the real question fundamentally below that is without that money, because we're all doing it ultimately for the income so we can buy that house, so we can sustain our family. Right. Can the government sustain us if we think about this pandemic, our rents and everything, on a low, I'm not saying, but on a very low level so we can exist, 
and express ourselves while robotics takes care of well nobody wants to be sitting at the grocery store i respect high art things where you were going in as an apprentice and you were learning the trade i think that should never go away i think that's fundamentally as the human being an important part of existence but let me and i'm going to hand this over to you now and it's a hard one for the future what so what I, think, right I think, I think, I think one, one, way, one way to look at it is to look backwards, right? And, and, oh, and, that's and throughout the entire Industrial Revolution, right? So it used to be that, like I said, the very tools that he is currently using computers to design used to have to be handcrafted, yes, right? Indeed. And people would have to actually whittle them, literally. And you're not saying it's McDonald's did a great little graphic yeah. handcrafted. <laughs> right. oh, and, yeah. so, and, so, and so we used to have things that were handcrafted and, you know, and in some cases, those imperfections uh, are artistic and beautiful and, and, and have value. But most of the time, they're just imperfections that actually, you know, end up meaning that the tool that you're producing is less good. Um, and so I, I think it's fair to say that, that we are currently producing the tools that he produces are substantially better than the tools that you could have produced 10 years ago. That's cool. Right? Yeah. That you have, you have higher precision machines. You have, you know, uh, you know, just you can do more complicated things. I, I was telling you, I have a friend who does uh, 3D printing, and he is looking into buying a $3 million uh, 3D printing metal machine that can actually do things that you cannot do with injection. Give me an example. So, like rocket engines is what he's trying to sell. So that you can make rocket engines that you could not make with injection molding or any other any other milling technique because you're actually building it up additively. So, so that those things are coming, and and it allows us to do more with more with less, as it were. but I don't think that really takes into account the, the human part yeah, of the what equation. What happens to humans? So That's what we all want to know. In your work, do you see do you see like what do you get the most satisfaction out of? You know, where where do you feel like you are using your skills and, and doing something that you don't think like the robot's gonna take your job anytime soon? Oh. <laughs> Troubleshooting. Hard one. Right. Oh, that's a good, that's actually good. As far as robots, troubleshooting, absolutely hands down, troubleshooting. Because yeah. when they have a problem in the press, and they, they're tweaking it, and, they, and they, they see, they look at the flow lines, look at this, look at this, and they kind of go, okay, we're having this problem, what's the solution? Let's try this. They'll bring it back to me. I make a few modifications. Because some things are not so easily predictable. Right. Even with flow analysis, sometimes right. it's off. Sometimes it's wrong. And, and things change or don't work the way they think it will. Um, and then you have to kind of switch gears and make an adjustment, remachine, change, weld, insert, whatever, give it back to them and try it again. Does your does your software that you have does it make any recommendations to you or suggestions uh, or like or like point out errors obvious faults? No, well at my level it does have add on like if you bought every piece of the software I'm using it's like right. stupid money. <laughs> uh, so my little tiny piece of it that I have is very small. So some of that stuff does kind of right. exist, but I don't personally have. So I, I know that in the in the world of software, for instance, um, you know there. The, the, the tools that we have now, the, the development environments for writing code, will actually make recommendations to you and, and yes. point out when you're, cool. when you're missing grammar and simple sort of right. things like I that. They're, that. Not, they're not really giving you creative stuff, but you know, it's getting there and, and these design patterns you know, are, are picking up on it. Um, but I mean, I guess the other question is, these things can happen a long time in the future. I mean, <laughs> do you anticipate yourself being displaced by a robot anytime soon? Not at my level at the moment. I see myself using robots more. But your apprentice, on the other hand. <laughs> okay, so that's, 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 we, are, we are running out of time here, but I'm going to leave on this final question. I'm going to, Daniel answer first, and then Donald, you can answer this as well. Daniel, what do you think, with this whole talk of AI and robotics, what do you think is the best possible outcome for the United States, for us here? 
all things considered. Right. I mean, that, that's a hard question. I, I like to I like to believe that we are a clever and creative population, and that Me we've too. always been a clever and creative Humans population. Humans in general. And I like to think that that you know the human experience is is better than pushing buttons, pulling levers. So I think the fact that we're moving away from that level of production it, it may not be a bad is, thing. is a good thing because yeah. because you know. To be honest, factory conditions were never really that great, right? And so, and so there are reasons why people went to robots and, and why it, it is generally better. What I'd like to hope is that we can get to the point where we can use these things, we can use these CAD programs and these AI to be more creative and to do more interesting things. I, I, that sounds wonderful as well. I think for me, being my little part of the world, my little part of manufacturing, is I would hope that we would take a little more pride as a nation like and that. as a globe, but also as a nation, in our skilled labor. Right. Um, and the things we can build and bring a little, you know, in Europe, I was always told and taught that in Europe, a toolmaker is treated like a doctor. Yes. Old I, school I, doctor. I would, I it's would funny, I've that. actually heard the reverse of that, that in Europe, doctors are treated like auto mechanics. <laughs> and, 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 here, and here, you know, you know, and not to beat up machinists, but, you know, like a toolmaker is... Like, you know, they know so much. A machinist also has yes. a similar set of skills. And there's not a lot of love for us. Uh, you know, right. and, mo- and some right. people don't even know we exist. They don't, even know, they don't even know how this is made. It's right. great to get a podcast out you know, to discuss this. They're going to buy it and not people. think any thoughts about what went into designing it, right. building it, engineering it, manufacturing it. They're not going to think anything. They're just going to use if it. If you're using right. it. You know, but, you know, like... But most people are, that, that I know, that I grew up with in the trade and, and were as apprenticed by and mentored by, we'll go to the store and pick up a part or buy something. We'll look at it and we'll look, we're looking for ejection pin marks, gate marks, and, and trying to figure out how did they make this, yeah. you know, because that's what we do. You know, we, we make it and we want to see how somebody else made something else. And it's just more, you know, people don't think it like that typically. It's right. true. And you it's know. an interesting thing to think about. Our final note, as we close up, if you had... And I'll give it to you, John. If you had one encouraging thing to say to people who are out there who are looking to get into what you do or are interested in, maybe they're put off because of the things we've talked about or because of the lower income or wage options there, what is, what's your final word of advice to everyone listening? If you're interested in doing the trade, what really attracted me was the precision and just the nuance of, I love troubleshooting and the precision of it. Because to me, it was like, you know, I, for example, I have a drop gauge that measures the 50 millionths of an inch. Most people can't even think what that is. Mm-hmm. The average human hair is three thousandths of an inch. Wow, I didn't know that. So if you take one of your hairs, cut it into three pieces, take one of those pieces, cut it into 10 pieces, take one of those, cut it in half. That's <laughs> roughly 50 millionths of an inch. 50 That's the accuracy level inch. that some manufacturing is aiming for depending not all manufacturing very accurate but you know like two but even two ten thousandths of an inch is pretty tight i deal with that as much as i can yeah and if you want a challenge in building something that can hold molten material at high pressures and just get apart (laughs) that's 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 right if this arouses you (laughs) this is the field for you i get a part out that has no flash on it and it looks perfect (laughs) <laughs> that that to me, you know, it's, it's a challenge. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I, I, and everything is custom. Everything's unique. Every tool is unique. And it's like, if you're a part, even if you make a part of it, it's like I have a, a little piece of you in that tool, in that thing, and yeah. it's going to keep making parts for as long as that Forever, part is viable. Yes, and that's beautiful. I think that's the perfect place to leave this. That's good. 
the impermanence but beauty of it. And I want to take a moment to thank both of you for good. joining me tonight. And I hope you guys don't mind we had a lot of background noise in this particular episode because we have guests over at the house. But I think it was really important and honestly really enjoyable. That was so really thank great. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Okay, and that's a wrap.